From St. Paul, Minnesota, and cities and towns across America, you're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller. For the next 12 weeks, Flyover is public radio's weekly conversation about identity in America during turbulent times. We'll take your calls. We'll listen carefully to stories from the parts of this country outside the media spotlight. Today on Flyover, we focus on the real America. What do politicians mean when they use that phrase? And a question for you, do you live in the real America? What comes to mind when you hear those words? Call us with your story at 1-83-FLYOVER-1. Reach out on Twitter with the hashtag FlyoverRadio. The conversation starts after this news. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from the studios of NPR News in St. Paul, Minnesota, a show about who we are in turbulent times. Over the next several months, we'll examine identity in America and where it intersects with our most urgent problems. And while you can expect cogent and insightful analysis from our guests, the most important voices in this show will be yours. I want your lived experience, your informed opinion to shape these discussions every week. Today, the political rhetoric and mythology around the real America. That phrase, real America, you can hear the subtext of class and race and identity in it. And that's what I'd like you to think about. What do those words, real America, say to you? How does the idea of real America fit with how you see yourself and the community that you live in? You can call me now, 1-83-FLY-OVER-1. That's 1-833-596-8371. Or on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag Flyover Radio. Now, identity and race and class are front and center in two hurricane zones right now. Houston is still drying out from Harvey, of course, and Florida is being lashed right now by the devastating winds and rain of Irma. Texas and Florida, as you know, are proudly diverse places. I mean, different races and different faiths and different incomes. But where do people without means get the help to rebuild? And what does recovery mean when you had very little to call your own before the storm? Two guests for the beginning of our conversation. Nina Satia is with us. She's an investigative reporter for the Texas Tribune and radio producer for Reveal. And she's in Austin, Texas. And Nina, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Pastor Sean Palmer is with us. He's a teaching pastor at Clysia in Houston and co-host of a podcast called Not So Black and White. His new book is titled Unarmed Empire in Search of Beloved Community. And he's with us from Houston. And Sean, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Sean, I understand your own house in Houston was flooded by Harvey, but you really haven't had much time to contemplate your own losses because you and your congregation are responding to a community in need around Mm -hmm. you. What's it been like? Well, Carrie, it's been, as you said, pretty hectic, uh, but it's also been fairly beautiful. As you know, if you've seen the footage on television, Uh, We have just got thousands and thousands of people who are flooded and displaced. Um, Some there are still some neighborhoods that still have water in their houses. And so 
we've been sending out crews all across the city um, from the richest neighborhoods to the poorest neighborhoods, uh, cleaning out houses, mucking out houses. And people have lost um, all of their belongings. They've lost everything in their home. They've lost sizable portions of their home. They've lost the cars. And so it's uh, been pretty difficult, one, just arranging for that amount of work. And we're seeing more and more need every day. And we are um, reaching out to more people every day. But at the same time, to do that with a level of care and sensitivity, because as you're going through someone's home, uh, it may seem useless and waterlogged to you, but those are uh, someone's uh, wedding photos, or those were the clothes that um, that kids, um, that your babies had. We had a family last week we were dealing with uh, who we were having to clean out their house, and their son passed away in the flood. Oh. And so part of the grieving process, people don't clean out when someone dies immediately, but we're having to do that. Now we're in a race against mold and mildew because it is hot in Houston. And we're trying to take care of all of those things at once. And you drive around to some of the neighborhoods that were affected, and it looks like an absolute war zone. Uh, things just on the curbs everywhere. Yeah, and the neighborhoods, uh, Nina, I know you've been in some of the neighborhoods in Houston that are historically African-American, many are low income. And I guess I would put it like this, that where the safety net is pretty threadbare. What did you see when you were reporting there? Well, I definitely saw a lot of what the pastor just described. I mean, it really looked like neighborhoods were just, you know, houses were torn apart. Um, everything that families owned was was piled up on the curb, and, and neighbors and friends were wearing, you know, those masks to protect um, to protect their breathing and, and going in and, and taking out everything that they could. So it's, it was certainly a lot of devastation. Um, and I think a, a lot of these folks are having to deal with other things at the same time that they don't have anywhere else to go. They are hoping to get FEMA assistance, you know, either to pay for them to stay in a hotel short term or longer term housing assistance. Um, they're having to figure out, um, you know, if they have to pay rent this month, even though they're mostly, of course, not living in, in the apartments if they're renters. So it's it's a really tough situation for them. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, that I wanted to get at here is many of these neighborhoods were places where there weren't a lot of job opportunities to start out with. So and and maybe not a lot of economic opportunity at large. And so you have people who might have been living in an apartment, raising a family there, just making ends meet. And now this. I mean, I, I, I read your story about the Rogers family. What do what how do people contemplate what the next thing to do is? Absolutely. The, the story about the Rogers family was really struck me in particular. We met Eddie Rogers and his daughter, Carla. Uh, she's six years old, outside of their flooded apartment um, on the edge of the Fifth Ward in Houston, a historically black neighborhood. Um, and, you know, they'd had to they had a very harrowing evacuation story uh, and then were forced to flee to the George R. Brown Convention Center, a shel- big shelter in downtown Houston. I, I talked to him this weekend. You know, he's lost everything and Luckily, he was able to get FEMA to come through with hotel assistance until the end of the month almost. But after that, he doesn't have housing assistance from FEMA. He's been denied housing assistance. And, you know, he had just moved to that apartment complex from a homeless shelter two months before the flood. Mm. He had just started to get back on his feet. So it's going to be a really difficult road ahead for him. You know, Shauna, I was wondering if, as I listen to your description of how you've been responding, if you are mostly responding to the needs in your congregation and to the, you know, the people in your immediate community, 
Or have you found yourself really needing to turn outward as a church and maybe cross some faith lines and some geographical lines, too? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and that's precisely what we've done as a faith community, is that we started, uh, we're we're a large church in downtown Houston, and we said, we want to help you out, but not to help you. Uh, We want you to introduce us to your neighbors, and we want you to walk us around uh, in your neighborhood, and we will help anyone that you know. So we're actually using um, our church members. They have become the ambassadors for their own neighborhood that this is my neighbor, they need help with these. This is how we can help. We, we have stories coming back uh, of uh, a whole neighborhood that's been helped by uh, just members of our church. And so, you know, obviously we ask for nothing in return. Uh, there, last week uh, we were introduced to a Jewish family um, who was introduced to um, us by a Muslim family that we had helped. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a need across the city that just about um, everybody has. And I know that there are some churches in our community who are focused singularly on their congregants, but we've chosen not to do that. But we want people to know that our faith commitment, that we live out certain uh, uh, principles and virtues in the public square. And so if you need help in your home, if you need help with food assistance, if you need help with housing, there's a lot that we're doing with both housing and food, that we're, we're going to be there for you. So I think at this point, um, we have raised, we think that we're going to need to raise somewhere near $7 million ourselves uh, to be of assistance to the people that we know and love in the city and people who need help. Uh, we have given out in dehumidifiers and air filters and all sorts of equipment. We've given out probably $300,000 worth of equipment, and that's open for, for anybody. So we do see ourselves... Um, uh, crossing what some people consider uh, racial and religious lines, we've never considered it that way. We've always considered ourselves as a resource to the community. Mm-hmm. And if you live here, if you live in Houston, um, you belong to us in some sense, and we belong to you in some sense. And we just want to be good neighbors. And so for us, it really is about loving your neighbor and being useful to the people that God's given you to love and protect and care for. We have begun this first show of Flyover, taking note, of course, of the news out of Houston and now, of course, out of Florida, and asking our guests and asking you to think a bit about what it means when we talk about identity in America and we think about race and class and income differences And what that leaves us after a disaster, like the one Houston has endured and the one that Florida is enduring now. And so Nina Satia with us, she's an investigative reporter and radio producer for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. And she's been writing about this. And Sean Palmer with us, a pastor, co-host of a podcast and the author of the new book, Unarmed Empire, In Search of Beloved Community. Nina, one of the things that I learned after Katrina was so many people who had lived in low-income neighborhoods, never got a chance to get the kind of mental health assistance. If you you couldn't pay for it, you often didn't get it. And and I wonder, I've got about two minutes left here, but I wonder if those are some of the things that you've observed in, in Texas. Well, I think, you know, we're, we're not quite there yet. People are still trying to figure out how to get back into their houses, how to, um, you know, how to live day by day. And so they unfortunately probably haven't had much of a chance to even process completely what's happened. And it's unlikely they were getting 
you know, the health care that they needed before the storm if, if they were struggling to make ends meet. So I think that's certainly going to be an issue. You know, when 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 I went to some of the shelters, especially in downtown Houston, uh, in the beginning of the storm, you know, there were tables set up. You know, do you want to talk? Do you need mental health assistance? But I think that, you know, people are extremely busy just trying to figure out how to get through the next day and, and even half a day. So I, I think that, that we're going to see those problems, you know, in the coming weeks and months. Yeah. I mean, as you note, the challenge is beyond survival, right? Really knowing how how to steady your, stabilize your mental health. And, and if you can't see this, are there people from the outside that can come in to help? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll say that, you know, one of the things that I saw across all sorts of different types of communities that I went to uh, with different income levels, different racial makeups, um, neighbors were helping each other. Um, groups, uh, advocacy groups, churches, um, relief organizations were going in to both types of neighborhoods. Um, and so I think that, you know, a, a lot of the people we met in, in, in both types of places uh, across Houston were, were getting some help, whether it's, you know, everything that they need is we'll, we'll, we'll see if that's true. Nina, thank you very much. Good to talk to you from Austin, Texas. And Sean Palmer, thank you very much from Houston, Texas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. Our conversation about American identity in turbulent times continues. I know that not every public radio station is airing our conversation live today, but I want to hear from you even if you can't call us right now. You can add your perspective on The Real America at this week's live blog at flyoverradio.org, or you can tweet us anytime. I'm at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag flyoverradio. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a show about who we are in turbulent times. Each Sunday through the fall, we'll examine American identity and how it intersects with some of the most pressing problems of our time. We have shows coming on what it means to be on the have-not side of the wealth gap, whether America's meritocracy is a myth, and an Election Day anniversary show from the heart of a state living with the president's new immigration policies. You'll hear provocative questions and analysis from our guests, but I know the best insights in these flyover conversations are going to come from you. So I hope you'll call in and you'll tweet in starting right now. Today, where is the real America? I mean, when politicians use that phrase and it pops up a lot in campaign seasons, they're often evoking a nostalgic image of a small town in middle America full of hardworking, folksy, Mayberry-like people. Those people in real America, according to this myth, well, they usually aren't black or brown. They didn't come here from somewhere else. They don't live in cities. And they sure as heck don't listen to public radio or read The New York Times. The trouble is only 20 percent of us live in anything close to those mythological Mayberries, and 80 percent of us live in places we view as the real America. But I have to say, this persistent political trope is divisive. So as we begin our discussion, I want to know what you hear in the subtext of those worlds, real America, and how it fits with how you see yourself and how you see your community. So here's the phone number. Think about that. When you hear that phrase, real America, what's it say to you? What do you think it says about you? 
And here's the number, 183-FLY-OVER-1. And that's 1-833-596-8371. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag FlyOverRadio. Our guest today, Maria Kefalis, is a professor at St. Joseph's University in Philly, and she's the co-author of Hollowing Out the Middle, The Rural Brain Drain and What It Means for America. And she's with us today from Philadelphia. Maria, welcome. It's good to have you on our first show on Flyover. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie, for having me. Nina Ravoyer is with us. She's a writer, and she's the author of Southland, and she's an advocate for low-income children and families, and she's with us today from Culver City, California. And Nina, so good to talk to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Good to have you on the show. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for having me back. Nina, I, I want to ask you why you think that shining mirage of real America is so appealing to Americans, and I assume it is because, as I said, we hear we hear about it a lot from politicians. What do you think it, it is that's so appealing? Well, I think you hit on something really important with your introductory remarks. That when politicians and other people say a real American or real America, that the implication, of course, is that there's also an, an unreal uh, America or uh, someone that is a group of people that are somehow less genuine. And I think it's important for us to kind of take a step back and think about, you know, what is the criteria for real? What do we mean? And who gets to decide? Is it that Mayberry vision that you just laid out? Is it the length of time that someone has been in the United States? You know, and if you look at it that way, then the picture of who is real would look quite different than the Mayberry picture. Is it people who really buy into this vision and idea of American institutions and values? Or is it, as it sometimes and often is used, code, as, as you mm. said, uh, for a certain kind of, of person and, frankly, a, a racial and, and ethnic code? And I think, and of course, the, the real America, in my view, includes a multitude of people. Uh, it includes all the kinds of people that you talked about. And the danger is when we use the term real as a term of exclusion, as a way of defining an in-group uh, and that's where we start to get in trouble. Uh, Maria, I want to grab a call before I come to you on that, but but I'm going to follow on what Nina said about the coded language and whether whether it's coded in a way today that it wasn't decades ago. And I think Jesus from St. Paul will have something to say about that. Hi, Jesus. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. What are you thinking about on this? Well, what I'm thinking about is, is the dissonance it puts me in. It puts me in a spot where, as being uh, uh, American, first of all, or Mexican-American, it puts me in a place where I feel excluded. In it, but it, what puts me in dissonance is that I'm living the American experience, right? But the, paying my taxes, taking care of work, doing it every day. But at the same time, I'm being excluded from certain places, from certain discussions, from certain narratives, from certain possibilities. So it always constantly plays me in this one spot where I'm never quite good enough to succeed or become that that, I, that I'm being promised. But at the same time, I'm here to actually kind of support that possibility so I could be used or not used whenever the ideology seems to be at the forefront. So, Jesus, when, when you hear a politician talk, use that phrase and talk about this ideal of real America, I mean, you're quickly aware that you probably wouldn't turn up on the poster for, hey, this is the real America. Yeah, and right, like even right now, as you said that, I get chills in my, in my and I want to cry because it hurts. It hurts to think that those are really good. 
and have a voice and have a place to say it, like, let's live the American dream, excludes me. I'm really... I'm I'm Um, like, I'm sought out when I'm when I'm when it's to the benefit of the American construct, but then I'm I'm excluded because I know the coding. What it really means is white Americans, and it doesn't include me, and so it hurts. I'm really glad you called, Maria. What do you hear in that? The first time I started talking about the real America, I heard my father use the term, and my father was a Greek immigrant. And we had just been told that we had gotten a grant to go live in rural Iowa. And when my father heard that my husband and my daughter, we were living, going to live in Iowa, he said, Iowa, that's the real America. <laughs> and uh, this was in 1999. And it, it predates when Sarah Palin uses the word. And uh-huh. I think that right. uh, was uh, certainly, I think, a, a benchmark for the use of the real America and today, would you believe, Carrie, it is the year anniversary of Hillary Clinton's infamous deplorables comment. Oh, didn't realize that. Uh, so, you know, I think that this this divide in America, this tribalism you spoke about, and really, really harkens back to this rural-urban divide. And from the rural perspective, if I, if I may speak of those people in real America, I think that they feel that um, the, the mythology of Mayberry, the mythology of the music man – is sort of this curtain that hides their real pain and their real vulnerability and that they they cling to that notion of we are the real Americans, we are the true America in the face of the fact that they're 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 dying in the problems that we associate with inner, the inner city in terms of globalization, uh, the declining jobs, declining opportunities, drug epidemic, poverty. And so the same problems that had washed over urban America that were so talked about and so discussed that Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders seem to have limitless compassion for happened in rural America with the meth epidemic and and with the loss of jobs and, and rural poverty. It just looked different and people were using the mythology to hide the problems. And so I think that the, the pain of the caller is mirrored by this um, illusion this very powerful narrative of how this is the real America, and yet the real the problems of America were very much there, just hidden and harder to see. And uh, when people are hurting, they they get angry. And uh, believe me, I, I I think this is the this is the heart of our problem right now in the, in the United States. Let's go to Wilmington, North Carolina, and to Daniel. Daniel, have you been thinking about this? Yeah, I have actually lately, just with everything that's been going on in our country, I've been thinking a lot about um, some of the friends that I grew up with. I actually grew up in Middle Tennessee, and um, I had a lot of friends that were a different skin color than me Mm -hmm. in my public school. And what I remember, I mean, when, when you ask me about this real America, what I remember is everybody was generally nice, and we got along really well. And um, we all had lots of great opportunities together. And, you know, when I interact with people one-on-one in real life, it's sometimes I feel like that there's a great disconnect between what I'm seeing on TV and the way that we're able to interact person to person. Yeah, I mean, do you, Daniel, do you feel like if a politician comes to Wilmington, North Carolina, and says... Now, this is real America. I mean, what's the image of your own community that comes into your, into your mind? 
Well, are you asking, like, what's my image? Yeah. Or are you asking what I think the politician might be trying to portray? I, I'd like to know about how you see your own community, because I think that's at odds with with the political speak around this. Okay. Yeah. Um, if If someone was to say the real America, then I absolutely think of... I think of all of the opportunities that that from my point of view, many of us get. And I think of um, just a, a, it's a, it is a beautiful mixture. And I, I love that. um, I love that there's not a lot of hostility in my world. And I understand that, that there is in other places, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe even, you know, near, near here, but in the circles where I run, um, people are just, very gracious to one another. And that's what real America feels like to me. All right. Yeah, I'm really glad for the call. Nina, um, Maria mentioned a minute ago that Sarah Palin used this phrase a lot in the 2000 election campaign and or 2008 election campaign. I wondered if um, real America, the code for it changed in that in that time in a way that perhaps it meant something different than it did several decades ago, that that code is somehow deepened and changed. What do you think? Well, I think that it, you know, Maria mentioned that her father used the term, you know, several years before Sarah Palin did. So I do think that that concept existed. And yes, I think it I'd intensified uh, in 2008. And I remember that time so well, because, you know, I am a person who has had exposure and has lived in many of our Americas. I was born in Japan. I have a white American rural father, Japanese mother, moved to rural Wisconsin where I lived in a small town. And my family, uh, that side of my family, would would qualify by Sarah Palin's definition as real Americans. (laughs) Uh, White, conservative, factory working, hunting, um, you know, incredible, uh, incredibly loving family for me. Then I moved to California, where I grew up in a largely African-American and Latino context, a more urban area, um, where I also felt incredibly comfortable. And so I have almost not had the luxury of defining myself in one way or with one group, because I've had to navigate all of these different Americas. And, you know, I find that, for me, it was an incredibly enriching, valuable experience to have to interact with so many different people to feel an identification with so many people. And I also came to believe that once you get kind of past the superficial differences, people have so much in common. They all want the best opportunities for themselves, to harken back to Maria's point about economic mobility. They all want the best for their kids. They all want to feel seen and to feel valued. And I think your second caller said something really important, which is that exposure um, and interaction is part of what starts to break those divisions down. And what becomes difficult is when people are so kind of in their boxes that they don't make the effort or have the opportunity to break beyond those definitions. You're listening to Flyover. It's a show for the next several months about American identity and where it intersects with some of the most uh, pressing challenges of our time. And today we're talking about where the real America is. I think a lot of us believe, whether we live in cities or small towns or medium-sized places, whether we come from all kinds of different backgrounds, we think we exemplify 
real America. But I think we also hear coded language when you hear that in the political realms and the punditry circles. And so we're examining just what that means with Nina Ravor. She's an author of novels, including Southland, and she's an advocate for low-income children and families. And she's with us from Culver City, California. And Maria Kefalis is with us. She's co-author of Hollowing Out the Middle, the Rural Brain Drain, and What It Means for America. And she's with us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I want to hear from you. I mean, this is the key for these conversations. What do you hear in the subtext of those words, real America, and how does it fit with how you see yourself and how you see your family and the community around you? You can join us at 1-83-FLYOVER-1. The number is 1-833-596-8371. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. That's in Minnesota, P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. And to Nicole in Idaho. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Glad you called. What are you thinking about this? Well, um, I think it's an interesting topic. I'm from a small town in Idaho, so I guess I could fit into the stereotypical um, America. However, I, I just think that's kind of hard to put America in a box. There's, it's so diverse. Um, but I think overall, my general feeling of what America is or should be or that. I would be proud of as American or how I would like America to be. It would be a place where truly you do have opportunity. I feel like if it is a place where if you want to achieve something bad enough, you have the opportunities and the means to do that. Um, I just think of it as a place where people helping people, I think in America, especially with things like Hurricane Harvey, it's so beautiful to see people stepping up to help other people. And I think that, Although I'm a Christian and that is kind of a founding religion for America, I recognize and accept that there's many different beliefs and religions, and I think that that's okay as long as other people aren't imposing on my beliefs and I'm not shoving their my beliefs down their throats or vice versa. I think that we should be able to love each other and live with each other and help each other as human beings. You know, Nicole, yeah, let me ask you this. Um, I, I, you're in Idaho. Are you in a small town or are you in Boise, near Boise? Well, I am 15 minutes outside of Boise, but it is a small town. Okay. You know, I have an acre of land. I've got some farm animals. So um, right outside of Boise, but a small town. Good to hear that. Glad to have your call. And this is something, Maria, that, that I wanted to get at here because, um, you know, we hear Nicole saying, uh, small town and these values and for her these Christian values a and again I think this nostalgic ideal says uh, you know it's like uh, it's like the mythology of it's a small town where everybody gets up at the sunrise and works till the day is done you know that kind of mythology and yet if you look at the the statistics and the average dem demography of America you find that Tampa, Florida, Wichita, Kansas, New Haven, Connecticut, uh, really represent overall greater similarity to our general demography of who America is than a lot of these small towns, right? Oh, absolutely. But I think that you, when you compare the real America to the sort of 
the liberal elite response to it, which includes things like, you know, President Obama talking about folks in Pennsylvania clinging to their guns and clinging to their religion, and you talk about Hillary Clinton and the deplorables, there's this ping-ponging, there's this this fight over what the real America is, and and politicians and pundits use it to advance their own cause, and and we and I think the people in flyover country have been caught in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that. Maria Kefalis with us, Nina Ravor, and Flyover here, our first show from NPR News in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we're talking about what it means to live and work in real America. Stay with us. I want to take a minute to get you ready for next week's show. We're calling it Up by the Bootstraps. Did you know that 45% of Americans think people are rich because they worked harder and they deserve it more? So be thinking about whether that rings true in your experience. Then tune in live at 4 p.m. Eastern time at flyoverradio.org or at this time next week on your public radio station. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a show about who we are in turbulent times. And if you've caught the show, you know today that we are talking about where the real America is. Next week, we'll be talking about what that means to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. So I hope you'll listen in next week. But this week, it's about the real America. And I'm going to go right back to the phones here. If you haven't caught the phone number, let me do this. one flyover one to tell me what you hear in the subtext of those words, real America, and how it fits in with your life and the place you live and your family, one 596 8371 By the way, you can reach me on Twitter anytime, after the show, before the show. I'm at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use that hashtag, Flyover Radio. Back to the phones here to Hallam in Pennsylvania. D- did I mangle your first name? No, it's uh, my name is Glenn, and I live in Hallam in ah, Pennsylvania. Got it. Sorry about that. Glenn, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What do you so, want to say? Um, yeah. I I think the, the term real America, um, I think it has a lot of different meanings. I know for myself specifically, I grew up in very rural north-central Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the entire county's population was about 80,000. So I now live in the Lancaster-York metro area, and I'm actually running for mayor of my town of Hallam. And I think when politicians use the term real America or or terms like that, I think it's dangerous because I think at a time right now specifically when there's so much uh, attention towards dividing our communities and dividing the conversations about whether it's, you know, political parties or, or, you know, specific issues – it shuts down the opportunity for conversation. And when I know I hear the term real America, I see that from a politician as saying a white America or a America where, you know, it excludes the, the majority. The reality that is the majority of, of our population. I think that's unfair. And I don't think that that's that's not how I see my community. And that's not how I see real America. I see real America as a diverse, beautiful country that has opportunity or that should have opportunity for everyone truly. And I think we need to work together to make sure that those opportunities are actually applicable to everyone, not just white America. Glenn, good luck with the mayoral campaign. And I'm really glad you heard the show and called in. Nina, do you think he has something there when he says 
it's not just divisive, but it's dangerous. Yes, I do. And, you know, to go back to your earlier question about whether the Sarah Palin period intensified things, Mm -hmm. of course it did. And because part of the context of her running was that she was with, with John McCain, who used very different language, much more inclusive language, she was running against our first black president. And so when she was talking about the real America, there was a, a clear comparison to the America that had been you know, existing for four years under a man who many people did not see as a legitimate president. And you know, should President Obama have made that comment about people clinging to their guns and religion? Of course he shouldn't have. That was incredibly dismissive and condescending. And yet the kind of rhetoric that came to light, uh, both in the campaign against him and then beyond, uh, reflected an anxiety that I think that we saw very clearly over the last couple of years around the fact that our society is changing significantly. So yes, of course, there is a lot of despair being expressed right now around the lack of opportunity, around jobs moving overseas, around people feeling forgotten in flyover country. Um, But there is also this element of this tension around society changing and what happens when a country is now starting to move in this century towards majority-minority when the definitions of American culture are changing. Um, So that does lead to a certain intensity and a a different kind of of power and, and, yes, danger when you start to talk about in-groups and out-groups and who is real and who is not legitimate. You know, Maria, um, I'm glad faith has come back into the conversation because I was wondering where it fits. I mean, people obviously in both small towns and big cities are connected to different faith communities. But I don't know, in some ways, we get the idea, I think, that believing in God is the preserve of these people in the real America. You know, they really understand the religious tenets in a way that if you live in a big city and you belong to some faith community there that that you might not I, again that's the the myth around it hmm. where do you think where do you think faith fits into this i don't i think that uh, in the context of this culture war if you will between you know the coastal elites and flyover country if you will that a lot of the anger and tension, which I see really kind of brought to life through the Sarah Palin to the Obama comments about clinging to guns, and then again in in 2016 with Hillary Clinton's uh, deplorable comment that you had a, a fundamental misunderstanding. And I remember uh, getting a call from someone with the, the Gore campaign many, many years ago, because I had written my first book about working class America and working class Chicago in particular, and they wanted to know, how can how can um, Vice President Gore talk to working class people? Hmm. And how can he engage with them? And and that was something that, you know, I think after after the civil rights movement, the, the Democratic Party struggled because they had embraced diversity and they had embraced civil rights. And that coalition between working class, blue collar people and uh, African-Americans starts to dissolve in, in, in the wake of civil rights. And so I think that the tensions for me, um, that religion is part of this this narrative and this trope of the true America and, and you know, we believe in God. But really, these are, I, I think, you know, I, I guess I'm a structuralist. I really believe that these anxieties about race and diversity are at their core about, about, about economic, economic opportunity and fear. And that one of the differences between rural communities and coastal 
elites or you know uh, you know large cities is the fact that people who live in rural communities prefer to be around people who are just like them this doesn't this doesn't make them racist or xenophobic they just prefer they have chosen to be in a place where families have been for for generations so when we do surveys of them they are distinctive from the folks who live in a place like San Francisco or St. Paul because the, those are folks who want to be around diversity and so we we've, we've sort of sorted ourselves into groups of people who uh, are you know embrace diversity and, and, and embrace these cultural centers and, and, you know embrace this sort of uh, identity politics and then other people who have who are a little more uncomfortable a little more reticent and have kind of withdrawn and of course a politician can can set a fire those those fears and anxieties and misunderstandings and use them so I think you know the idea of faith just gets just gets uh, manipulated to advance whatever agenda uh, people want to put forth. So I, I, I don't want to, you know, the faith communities to me are not really, uh, not they're just part of the, the weaponry mm. used in the war. Uh, Rebecca called from New York and said, I was born and raised in New York City. It makes me angry that people think I'm less of a real American than people <laughs> who grew up in <laughs> Iowa. And Edward called to say, I agree with this generally. The whole notion of real America is too nostalgic and exclusive. It completely ignores the fact that America is constantly evolving. It's all of us in the here and now, not just those who have benefited at the expense of others. And to the phone's debris listening in Greenville, North Carolina. Hi, Bree. Hello. Hi. What do you What do you want to say here? Um, well, I, I was born and raised near Greenville, North Carolina, which is such an interesting town because it is in a rural part of North Carolina, lots of farming, but there's also um, a university and a large hospital there. So it's this, this really odd mixture of um, different classes, different like financial situations, and it's very racially diverse because it's near the, the eastern side of the state. Um, so growing up, I... I was exposed to a lot of different mindsets and different people groups. You know, my friends, my neighbors were all very diverse people. Um, but a student taught last semester on the western side of our state near the mountain. And um, for the first time, I was in a place that's really n- not racially diverse. The school that I taught at had about 1,400 students. And of those, less than 100 of them were non-white students. Huh. Um so it's, it's a very different place than where I grew up. And so for the first time, I saw this group of people that in my in my mind, you know, you, you think of people and you're like, oh, well, they they are in this small town. They are, you know, the working class. They're very like Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman kind of, you know, working for this dream. And, you know, in, in my mind, I associated it with, with racism. I was like, oh, there aren't other people. There must be a reason for that. But I noticed with my students, they didn't know how to talk about race. They didn't know how to address the few students that they knew that were of a different race. And that's because they don't, they don't have that context, that background in education of, of being around people, being exposed to enough people that you learn what's okay to say, what's not okay to say. Mm-hmm. So, of course, some of them, you know, their heart was, was to do harm. But for most of them, they just didn't know. They didn't know how to talk to other people. Um, so I guess that was the first time that, that I saw a group of people that were, you know, the people that, that would be looking for this this dream. It's really near, actually, um, 
the the town that um, Andy Griffith's show was based off of. So, <laughs> the Mayberry town. Um, you know, I, I was going to say, Bree, what you're what you're bringing up here reminds me of something I wanted to ask Nina and Maria about, which is. You know, the real America, the true America, is a place of reinvention and change. I I think most Americans are proud of that. We're we're proud of this ethic of innovation and change. And yet the tension here is that we also, along with that idea, want to want to believe in this very dated idea of who we are and what we stand for and what that image looks like. There's a contradiction there, Nina, which is which is why we're spending an hour talking about it today. Yeah, sure. It's it's you know, change as a concept is wonderful until it happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, as as with many things, so I think that that's part of the the challenge and you know, the the town that your your caller just described in some ways reminds me of, you know, where I live for a number of years in, in rural Wisconsin where, um, you know, I, I lived with my grandparents when I first moved from Japan. And again, very, very loving uh, family. But, you know, I was the, I was a half Japanese kid, did not speak English at the time. And it would be an understatement to say that I was not welcome there. Um, so, well, you know, give me an example of what happened when you were, when you were new to town. Well, this was 19, you know, mid-1970s, and a lot of people in town had, you know, relatives, fathers, grandfathers, uncles who had been in World War II. And so my being an immigrant from Japan, even though my father was from the town, you know, it's not just that I was a mixed-race kid or that I was, you know, a foreigner. I was actually, you know, part of the enemy because the, the memories of World War II were so fresh. And so that meant, you know, exclusion. It meant bullying at school. It meant families not allowing their their kids to interact with me. Uh, And it could be quite intense. And, you know, I was a five-year-old, you know, six-year-old, eight-year-old kid at the time. Um, When I ultimately moved to a a bigger town in Wisconsin, it got better. But, you know, it wasn't simply that folks were kind of choosing to be, yes, they're choosing to be amongst themselves. But then when someone is introduced from the outside who does not fit the mold, Mm -hmm. um, the response to it was, really, you know, not wonderful. What what would you say, Maria, about that that contradiction? The pride we take in in the melting pot and the evolution of what America is, with again hanging on to this dated idea of who the real people are, who the real Americans are. When I moved to Iowa, <laughs> I think that uh because I'm half Greek and half West Indian, uh, there were rumors all over town about what I was. And one day the the Catholic pastor came to my house and said, uh, hello, you know, how are those tomatoes growing? I see you're trying to grow asparagus. And by the way, I hear that you are Polynesian. And uh, <laughs> and it was like it, it was like a it, it was like a computer program trying to figure out what category I was <laughs> supposed to be in. And uh, I remember walking down the streets of this of this beautiful town where people were so loving and so kind and and seeing young men in in trucks with guns slow down because the brown woman had moved into town. And so I, I, I'm always struggling with the, the the paradox there of people of tremendous compassion and love. And then reconciling that with the fact that race um, and dealing with race were things that they really, truly struggled with at times that frightened them. They were they were afraid of the Mexicans who who might move into their town and and 
and wipe and wipe it out. And and I, I will say I don't, I don't want to be an apologist for that, but I think that one thing to keep in mind is that immigration in rural America today is happening like nothing we've ever seen. Right. Where you have in a decade, a town will go from zero percent. Uh, non-native born to 20, 30, 40 percent. And the schools dominated by these younger generations of people. And so the paradox is that diversity can save rural America. Immigration is a, a tremendous economic force to to support these regions. And yet these communities that uh, really struggle with these issues are being asked to face diversity in ways that Chicago, New York, never did in yeah, terms of good community transforming very quickly. Ken says on Twitter, real America sometimes means us but not them, and common mm-hmm. sense sometimes means our favorite values, not theirs. And Cheryl, this is interesting, from Rhinelander, Wisconsin. She says, Rhinelander is a small town. Uh, she's been hearing a lot of generalization about small towns, that we're all Christian, that we all have the same ideas. She says, we don't necessarily believe that we're the real Americans, but we certainly feel like the left out ones. Nina, I think you were getting to that a few minutes ago when you were talking about this. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I appreciate what Maria said about the paradox, because there are also incredible strengths um, in communities that you have been existing for generations where people are interwoven. Um, and how do you build upon those strengths? How do you not lose you know, the, the talents of people in particular areas while also being open to the fact that, that change is possible? But I think it ultimately all comes down to whether people, you know, what I said earlier, whether people feel valued, whether people feel that there is opportunity for them. And part of what's happened, obviously, in our rural areas as with our cities, as you you said earlier, is that people feel that they've lost that pipeline or they've lost that pathway to opportunity, and that's where some of the despair is coming from. But I also, you know, I'm an optimist, and I always want to land on a place of hope. Uh And the way that your show opened, the story of, of the pastor and what he and his congregation were doing, you know, disregarding faith, disregarding color, disregarding class in order to go out and help their fellow Houstonians. That's what I am hopeful that America can be. The ability to for individuals to see themselves not just as part of their own tribe or group, but as part of a larger community. And somehow we have to get back there. And Nina, I think just in the minute and a half I have left, the challenges, and, and I was getting at this with our pastor, is not to turn back inward with all the needs, right, that a congregation and a community have, but to after the disaster or not in the urgency of the disaster to remain open and outward facing. And he acknowledged, I think, that, that that's going to be a challenge. Yes, sometimes crisis brings out the, the best in us, you know, and, and how do we keep that sense of community, sense of, of belonging and that expansiveness of spirit alive uh, once the crisis has passed and we're back to the day to day. But that's up to all of us to do. I really appreciate both of you. Great conversation. Thanks for being with us on our first flyover show. Nina, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. Maria Kefalis is co-author of Hollowing Out the Middle, the Rural Brain Drain and What It Means for America with us from Philly. And Nina Revoir is a novelist and and an advocate for low-income children and families. Her novel, Southland, Excellent. Hope you'll read it with us today from Culver City, California. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, taking note of the fact that many Americans believe that if you're rich, you worked harder and you deserve it. So we're going to talk about 
yeah, some of the coded language and what up by the bootstraps really means. You can talk to me about it between now and then on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio and meet me right back here next Sunday for Flyover. I'm Carrie Miller. <laughs>